Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Welcome back, everybody, to Start By Listening. It's Jennifer, a.k.a. The Friendly Therapist, and I'm here with my PIC. Hello, everybody. It's Shelby, the Victim Advocate. Welcome back. We're so excited to be here. You know, I was thinking over the weekend um, after reading those amazing stories and experiences and perspectives of survivors, man, that was just, that was really powerful. It was. It um, shook me a little bit the rest of the day. I had to do some breathing, some meditation, some gentle movement just to kind of shake out all of that really heavy, heavy energy. But it was inspiring as well as upsetting. Yeah. So, you know, around here, or as we'd say down in Kentucky, round hair, (laughs) um, we like to encourage everyone to take care of themselves, right? So if you hear something on any of our podcasts that triggers you, you know, take time out for yourself. Take a walk, put your bare feet on the ground, do some breathing, talk with somebody you trust and care about. Because, you know, even though this might not be your story, this might not be your poem, hearing um, trauma can also affect our own nervous systems. Um, And so that's why, as a therapist, I do things every day to help me be able to process and move through what I hear. Otherwise, um, I wouldn't uh, be very good at what I do. So, you know, we got to take care of ourselves. And self-care is not selfish. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you've heard that before, but it's true. A lot of times we have this idea in our head that we just have to power through Mm -hmm. any type of uncomfortable feeling or we need to do something and we put so much pressure on ourselves. But it's important to take time, take a step back, and nurture, nurture all of that inner stuff that's going on beautifully stated Shelby I couldn't have said it better myself so with that we're bringing you our final installment uh, for April for sexual assault awareness month and we are continuing to highlight and uplift all diverse voices of individuals who have experienced sexual harm and so I'm going to turn it over to my PIC Shelby And uh, she's going to read a little something-something for us this morning. A little something-something, yes. So in the last installment, I read a story out of this book, Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, edited by Roxanne Gray. And I'm going to read another story out of this book today. And that is how we're going to start off. This one's shorter than last time. It is called Knowing Better. And I sincerely apologize. I'm going to uh, uh, mispronounce this author's name, but it's Samita Makopadehay. I tried the best I could. I apologize, Samita. That's a long last name. 
Um, but again, the title is Knowing Better, and here we go. By the time I turned 30, I thought I had my shit together. I had managed to turn a life of substitute teaching and hanging out at raves into a career in writing and a day job in media strategy just from the exposure I was getting at a well-known feminist blog. I had just sent in my first print piece for the anthology, Yes Means Yes, Visions of Female Sexual Power and a World Without Rape, edited by Jessica Valenti and Jacqueline Friedman. I was in talks for my first book deal. I was finishing my MA at night, and I was booking my first set of speaking gigs, touring the country to lecture young women about the importance of telling their stories. I had found my voice, and it was resonating with people who didn't even know me. For someone who never thought she would ever have a real career doing anything she actually liked, the possibilities started to seem endless. For once, after decades of bad grades, aimless career ambitions, and rejection from jobs, schools, and boys alike, I felt worthy. But I was also going through a nasty breakup from a toxic relationship fueled by coke, ecstasy, Coke and ecstasy, we'd get nearly every weekend at raves on top of drinking and experimenting with God knows what else. And after the breakup, I had started to spiral out. My friend Jessica called it my tram page, and I spent it going to parties alone, staying out until 4 a.m. on weeknights, getting drunk, ending up in random beds, and having lots of casual, often mediocre sex. I justified my lifestyle with my politics. I was independent, an independent woman who could fuck random men without remorse or judgment. I didn't get attached either because I was a cool girl. I'm literally fighting heteronormativity, I told my feminist self. My political identity carefully constructed around defying the norms of what was expected of straightish single women. I knew better than to get myself raped, but it happened anyway. I met him at a club and we were dancing and kissing. His name started with a K, but I can't really tell you what it was anymore. I definitely knew at the time. He was tall and handsome, really tall. And I remember telling him I didn't want to have sex. Should we go to your place, he asked. Not tonight, I responded tipsy. We kept dancing and kissing. It wasn't bad, but I was tired and I had an early morning. I just want to smoke a blunt and massage your feet, he asked sweetly. I giggled because I always fucking giggle when I get nervous. Sure, I conceded. At that point, I was pretty drunk. We went back to my place and we smoked weed. I was still drunk. Normally, I just get the spins. That time, I passed out. I woke up to him penetrating me in my own bed, unclear how we had gotten to that point or when we had gone upstairs to my room. I passed out again. I was in and out of consciousness the rest of the night. In the morning, I fully woke up, and he was trying again. I said no and forcefully pushed him off me. I looked away, trying not to cry, and noticed that the fucker had been considerate enough to use condoms. I asked him to leave. I said I had to go to work. I did have to go to work. I did go to work. Somehow. Numb with something more than a hangover, I texted my best friend, and I said that I had an intense night with some dude. She said, oh, girl, unsurprised to get another text like that from me. I was a feminist activist and a writer and thought leader. I knew better. That wasn't rape. That was just some, some shitty sex I would shake it off. I didn't talk about it again for a year. 
A year later, I was thumbing through that anthology. My first essay was in Yes Means Yes, when I saw LaToya Peterson's essay, The Not Rape Rape. But instead of being excited about being included in a special project, about having my first byline in a book, about being published alongside people I adored and admired, I got a terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. That night, the year before, I had been raped. I still didn't want to talk about it. I got that book deal. I'd been in talks for to write outdated Why Dating is Ruining Your Love Life. It was an honest look at how women incorporate their feminist ideals into their romantic lives, specifically geared towards strong feminist women who also happen to have that one terrible flaw. We date men and have to navigate the ins and outs of the patriarchy while doing so. I wrote an entire book about love and dating and sex without mentioning having been raped, not to my editor or most of my friends. I did travel the country, speaking to college students about the importance of women being brave, speaking for themselves, and telling their own stories. I became a campus evangelist for feminist blogging, the, revel revel the revelatory connected speaking truth to power kind. Women would come up to me after my talks and tell me about the things with which they were grappling, sexism at school, the sexualization of their bodies, the pressure to be feminine, the pressure to have it all, and of course, rape culture on campus. I helped women tell their stories about rape without talking about my own story of being raped. I also stopped having sex for a long time. The first time I did it again, I sobbed uncontrollably, uncontrollably trying to hide it from the overly eager man who I'd let inside me. It happened the next time I had sex too. I put on weight, Digging myself deeper into overeating or drinking too much, I threw myself into my work, too. At least I had my work. I help women tell their stories, I thought. My story isn't as serious. It isn't as important. I'm dealing with it. I'm okay. The chasm between my vocation and the story kept growing the more I worked. If I had been raped, could I still be strong? Could I still teach other women how to escape the gripping, harsh reality of rape culture if I had succumbed to the forces that silence women about their own assaults? I kept silent. I doubled down. Instead of encouraging women to tell their stories, I started editing the stories of women who have been raped. I had to rigorously analyze and fact-check their stories, knowing that they are probably true, but having to navigate a professional system, journalism, inextricably tied to the legal one in which they won't believe they won't be believed or in which cases are hard to prove shaking sometimes but editing stories that are so close to mine a girl unconscious raped in college a girl raped by her boyfriend a girl raped by someone she loves a girl raped at a party a girl raped by a friend women like me and yet not me because they were doing what I couldn't do tell my story the constant drumbeat of stories of sexual assault from R. Kelly to our own goddamn president keep me in a constant state of post-rape PTSD. Some days I feel like I have to hold my breath just to read the news so I can get through it and on with my workday. I am two parts of this system. I am an editor and I was victimized and survived. The same thing I'm reading, writing, and editing. People often get into this work to help survivors and to grapple with their own stories. 
I dug myself deeper into I dug myself deeper into it to avoid grappling with mine. Last year I was invited to a retreat about storytelling to talk about how to bring your most authentic self into your professional life. How to live a life that is not manufactured for your career, but a reflection of who you deeply are. It was on that retreat that my silence began to unravel after listening to one of my best friends share something I had already knew I had al- I already knew with a room full of near strangers that she had been sexually assaulted. She had learned somewhere in the inner room to do more than simply reveal what had happened to her. She learned to tell a story of it so it didn't become her only story. And as I listened to her, as I watched her be an encourager of other people's storytelling, an independent, smart woman and survivor of sexual assault, I felt finally like maybe my story was worthy of telling too. And maybe I was worth of, worth the telling of it. And so I told. I wanted to read that because I feel like it resonates. A lot of times we minimize what we've been through because it's not that bad. But it still has a deep, profound impact on our everyday you know minimization it's um, a trauma response right Mm -hmm. and I think perhaps it might be the most deadliest one because when we minimize we are discounting our own lived experience which is just as important as anyone else's I loved in that essay how she really grappled with and came to terms, especially like in that that workshop about bringing your most authentic self into, you know, your story. And that's when it seems like for her that window opened, like I am all of these things. I'm worthy of my voice being heard. You know, so many of us, whether we are a survivor of sexual harm or not, so many of us as women struggle with worthiness, just in general, right? Hmm. Thank you for sharing that one. That was really powerful. That's another book that I'll have to really invest the time in and read all of the short stories and essays. Yeah, I encourage you to do so. I have not read all of them. These two excerpts are just the ones that stood out as very, very powerful to me. Um, I do want to read the rest of them as well. And I have to just say, um, there was only a few books that I had to get through the interlibrary loan, but our local public library here in Owensboro, Kentucky, I mean, they have books. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I was really kind of nervous when I went to do a search there. Am I going to find anything for Sexual Assault Awareness Month? And yes, I did. Not only have we found beautiful books, but very diverse, you know. Wow. Good job, Davis County Public Library, if you're listening. Support your local libraries, even if you're not in Davis County. Excellent. So this is a book, um, you know, Squirrel, I just have to say this, many, many years ago before the age of the internet, okay, I'm dating myself here, 
um, we had the Dewey Decimal System, and the way you would check out a library book or anything from the library would be in the back of the book there would be a little pocket, and in that pocket would be like a little library card that they would stamp like little dates on. And even before then, like in the school libraries, and they might still do this, I don't know, I'm old, I'm not in school, You would ha- they would sign on the card and you would see like just how many people have checked out a book, right? We don't get that luxury now, um, not that I know of, to see. But this is a book um, that I think more people should know about. Um, and I think it's it's a sleeper, right? But it's so good. Um And in fact, I'm just going to read a little bit about how this book came into existence. The name of the book is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. And it is written by a woman named Sohalia Abdullahi. And I probably butchered that, and I do apologize sincerely. Um, I kind of just looked at it phonetically and spelled it out, sounded it out that way. And so here's a little bit about how this uh, book came into existence. After surviving gang rape at 17 in Mumbai, so Halia Abdullahi was indignant about the deafening silence that followed and wrote a fiery piece about the perfection, excuse me, about the perception of rape and rape victims for a women's magazine. Thirty years later, with no notice, her article reappeared and went viral in the wake of the 2012 fatal gang rape in New Delhi, prompting her to write a New York Times op-ed about healing from rape that was widely circulated. Now, Abdullahi has written what we talk about when we talk about rape, a thoughtful, generous, unflinching look at rape and rape culture. Drawing on her experience, her work with hundreds of survivors as the head of a rape crisis center in Boston, and three decades of grappling with rape as a feminist intellectual and writer, she tackles some of our thorniest questions about rape, articulating the confounding way we account for who gets raped and why, and asking how we want to raise the next generation. And so in this book, I'm going to read... Chapter 5. And Chapter 5 is entitled, Yes, No, Maybe. And there are two little sayings um, that start off this chapter. Confucius, he say girl with skirt up, she run faster than man with trousers down. Eh? Colin Dexter, Last bus to Woodstock. Men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. Attributed to Margaret Atwood. And so here we go. Yes means yes, and no means no. If it were that simple, this book would fit on an index card. But here we are, pondering the meaning of consent. It's both really easy and really difficult. Blue Seat Studios created a charming little video, Consent, It's Simple as Tea, 
It uses stick figures to illustrate why having sex is like a cup of tea. If you wouldn't force someone to drink tea, why would you force them to fuck? If someone said they wanted tea and then changed their mind when you made it, would you pour it down their throat? And so on. It's a nice tool for children, but sex isn't a cup of tea. If you don't really want a cup of tea, but you drink it because you're afraid you'll offend your host, that's good manners. If you don't really want sex, but you do it because you're afraid you'll offend your date, and this happens all too often, that's not quite the same thing. It might not quite be rape, and then again, it might be. What are you afraid your date will do if you say no? A friend of mine went to a brothel when he was a teenager. He had had only a few sexual experiences and wanted to expand his horizons. He went swaggering in and put his money down. A sweet and very young-looking girl took him into a little room. We both sat on the bed, he told me, and I didn't know what to do. She was just looking at me, so I said, Take your clothes off. She said no. So then I asked. I didn't know what to do. Was I supposed to force her? She said no. I said, okay. And then we laid down next to each other for a while, and then the time was up, and I left. This makes perfect sense to me. Yes, he paid for sex. But if she didn't want to take her clothes off, he had no right to rip them off. He could have asked for his money back, but he was correct not to force her. It's obvious to me, but plenty of people might think that once he's paid, she has, she was his to do with as he pleased. Being a sex worker doesn't mean you deserve to be raped. Neither does being a spouse. Again, your ability to consent depends on who you are and where you are. In Canada... Raping your wife is a crime, except if you become before, excuse me, except if you come before Superior Court Justice Robert Smith, who ruled that a man who didn't know it was illegal to force intercourse on his wife was not guilty. In India, Ghana, Jordan, and numerous other places, once a woman is married to a man, she signs over the rights to her vagina and the rest of her body to her husband. No consent? No problem. The law says marriage means full access, no questions asked. In Kuwait, if you rape someone you're not married to, you can get out of trouble by marrying your victim. Thankfully, governments across West Asia are realizing how inhumane these laws are. Getting married to rebrand a rape as an act of lovemaking looks more like state-sponsored sadism than criminal justice. And let's not fall into the common trap of vilifying only the Muslim world. In Italy, Article 544 of the Penal Code also allowed rape to be canceled by marriage. This goes to the heart of the true meaning of consent and what you are actually consenting to. According to Article 544, made famous in the 1960s by Franca Viola, a girl who refused to marry the man who kidnapped and raped her, sexual violence is a crime against morality, not against a human. This meant it could be fixed by marriage. Just think. 
You can erase all the bad juju caused by rape by simply going to church and having a matrimonial repertory with your rapist. The law was finally abolished in 1981. Now that heterosexual couples aren't the only ones allowed legally to marry in more than one place, it will be interesting to see how rape laws evolve. Will men be allowed to rape their husbands? Or will the power dynamics shift with gender dynamics? I had four men with weapons threatening to kill both me and someone I loved. They made him drop his pants, held a knife to him, and said they would castrate and kill us both if I didn't stop fighting. So I did. I, quote, let them rape me. I, quote, chose rape over death. Some people might call that consent. Harvey Weinstein and various other Hollywood bigwigs allegedly threatened to shame women or ruin their careers if they didn't give in. Does this mean the women gave consent? What about if one or both parties is drunk? Kim Fromm, a blackout expert, appears regularly in court as an expert witness to say it's possible to consent while blackout drunk. According to this point of view, you aren't competent to drive a car or operate machinery, but you're fully able to consent to sex. It's all very confusing. Suddenly, yes means yes and no means no starts to look very murky. There are just so many exceptions in laws and in our minds. Vanessa Grigadortis, author of Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus, said in an interview, What we're really talking about is a new standard for consensual sex. That's the way we're talking about sexual assault now. I was always taught that rape is only about power and not about sex. But, no, not in this area. Not in the kind of sexual assaults we're talking about. We really have to talk about sex itself and the way the post-adolescents are having it and get into that conversation that nobody really wants to have in order to kind of, you know, make substantial changes here. Because the programs that they're running for orientation really don't work. Don't ever write a book about rape. That's my number one tip. Some United States universities have instituted, quote, affirmative consent guidelines. That sounds great, but how many teenagers are going to sit down beforehand and discuss exactly what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and precisely how willing they are? Sex doesn't always work that way, no matter what age you are. We can and must talk to our children about making sure they participate in consensual sex. But no amount of prescribed language can make up for basic mutual respect. Yes, ask. Look for signals. Keep your dick in your pants until you're really very, very sure. But in the end, you have to care. You have to care about another person's wishes and feelings. And about their desires. Jacqueline Friedman, a sexual consent educator in Massachusetts, has the wisest words for this, capturing the real worth of parsing out consent. Quote, affirmative consent changes the morality at the core of sexual interactions. 
Let us consider and hang our heads in shame about the extremely low bar we set for consent. Consent to what? A man having an orgasm and a woman letting him? A prisoner submitting to a guard to gain protection from further abuse? An old woman with dementia putting up no fight when the nursing home attendant gets handsy? That is such a poor standard. Sex is about pleasure and joy for both, or however many are a part of the action. Willing participants. Let's aspire to this. Female orgasms definitely don't play a major part in conversations around consent in India. In fact, quote, consent often doesn't play a major part in the conversations around sex, and certainly not when it comes to defining sexual violation. Madhutmiya Pandi, a doctoral student at Anglia Ruskin University in the UK, has spent years talking to convicted rapists in Delhi's notorious Tihar jail. She interviewed more than a hundred men. In the beginning, she thought of them as monsters. By the end, she came to see them as human. They were poor, abused, battered by, them, by their circumstances, victims of caste, class, and economic injustice. Parentheses. Kindly note, though, girls living in poverty and dealing with all of these issues and misogyny don't generally go out and rape to vent their frustrations. End parentheses. They were just ordinary men with ordinary values and no concept of consent. Most of them didn't even think about their crime as rape. Granted, her research population was not typical. Only the most disenfranchised men actually go to jail for committing rape in India. But plenty of men whose wealth and power insulate them from punishment share the same values. Jacqueline Friedman writes, the basic principle at the heart of affirmative consent is simple. We're each responsible for making sure our sex partners are actually into whatever is happening between us. Since decent human beings only want to have sex with people who are into it, this shouldn't be a hard sell. But if you've been raised to think of sex as a battle of the sexes, or as a business deal in which men, quote, get some, and women either, quote, give it up or, quote, save it for marriage, it can still be a jarring idea, like suggesting to someone that there's something they could breathe other than air. In the absence of a comprehensive, pleasure-based sex educational curriculum, we rely on media and other cultural institutions to model what sex should look like. Whether you turn to abstinence, propagandists, mainstream pop culture, or free internet porn to fill in those gaps, you're likely to wind up with an incredibly narrow and bankrupt idea of how sex works. One that positions men as sexual actors, women as the, parentheses, unlucky recipients of men's desire, and communication of consent as lethal to both boners and romance. Teaching affirmative consent does something profound. It shifts the acceptable moral standard for sex, making it much clearer to everyone when someone is violating that standard. Affirmative consent, when taught well, also removes heteronormative assumptions from sex ed. 
If we're each equally responsible to make sure our partner is enthusiastic about what's happening, gender stereotypes such as that women are passive and men are aggressive about sexuality to begin to break down. Consent education does something else transformative. It tells girls that sex is supposed to be for them. How do we teach our children, our partners, and ourselves about consent? Consent is not even an issue in many, many situations. The men who raped me were going to rape me no matter what, and my only choice was whether to live or die. But most of us as sexual beings find ourselves in ambiguous situations. And for those of us curious about how we navigate those confusing currents of yes, no, maybe, help is available from an interesting quarter in the BS the BDSM community. BDSM refers to bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism between consenting adults. Wait, do not run away. Remember, consenting adults. BDSM is a structured culture that exists for adult humans to play with and explore power dynamics in erotic ways, Tina Horn explained to me. You can show you care by spanking someone really hard, if they want it. Tina Horn, posts, ho, Tina Horn hosts a podcast called, Why Are People Into That? She's a journalist, a sex worker, a sex educator, and pornographer. She worked as a dominatrix for many years in several United States cities. While I have absolutely no desire to either spank or be spanked, I do think she makes a good point about respecting other people's wishes, about just listening. Even if you're not into leather and whips, there's something to be learned from a subculture that values structure and negotiation. It's not particularly complicated. If you grow up thinking that your needs are paramount, you are less likely to pay attention to or care about your partner's feelings. BDSM actually mirrors some of the best features of affirmative consent. Before getting down to business of pleasure, check with your partner. Agree on what you're doing, how to signal that you want to stop, and how to pick up that signal. Sex is more fun when you're in it together. Being in tune with your partner or partners doesn't remove mystery. Au contraire, it is an alluring joint adventure. Tina insists that we would have a healthier society if BDSM were destigmatized. I think we would have a healthier sexual society if sex were destigmatized. If women stopped feeling bad about having desire and men stopped feeling entitled. By feeling entitled, I mean that consensual sex isn't like a train journey. Buying a ticket doesn't mean you're entitled to ride to the end of the line. A lot of people, from rapists to parents to policymakers, don't seem to grasp this. In 2017, a California judge dismissed the charge against a 20-year-old college student who was accused of raping a fellow student. The judge cited videos showing the woman following the man out of a club, letting him into her room. This, according to the judge, showed that she was the initiator. So what? So what if she's the initiator? If she was drunk... Or she changed her mind after they were in the room, or she changed her mind after they were both naked and the condom was already on. If she changed her mind at any point, 
And he didn't listen. That was the point at which she stopped consenting. There's no guaranteed ticket to the end of the line. Sometimes individual women, sometimes the individual women, woman does say yes, but that doesn't make the encounter less abusive. When Sanja told me about being raped as a child by an adolescent boy whom she hero-worshipped, she said she loved his attention and wanted to explore her own budding sexuality. When he finally forced her to have intercourse, she was upset and reluctant, but, quote, you don't want to say no to a friend. I just wanted to be polite. So he raped her. She didn't say no. She didn't say yes. She didn't want to do it. She was a child, and he was big and strong. We talk about consent as if it all boils down to the one person saying yes to the one other person. And while that is the ultimate frontier, I think about a lot of institutional consent. It takes a whole lot of intricate scaffolding for abuse to flourish. For instance, in India, mother-in-laws often wield immense power. In case after case of spousal murder, we learn that it is the mother-in-law who made the dowry demands and the mother-in-law who poured the kerosene over the tormented wife and set her on fire. It's complicated to look at women's agency in a system of abuse, but we must. The dowry system in India, homophobic laws in Africa and the Caribbean, the unbridled power of spiritual leaders, from gurus to rabbis to imams to priests, there's a whole cast of enablers. And then it hardly matters what the individual woman says or doesn't say. The network of collusion and complicity in Hollywood that came jarringly to light during the hashtag MeToo campaign is another example of institutional consent. You know you can get away with it because the whole system is set up to help you get away with it. This is a glittering example because it involves movie stars and designer gowns, but it is no less real, menacing, or horrifying for its victims. It is a rare field example of a system built to support and condone abuse. A friend confided in me that she is having trouble feeling sorry for some of the famous actresses who are coming forward to talk about being abused by powerful men. They made a choice to keep quiet, she said. They went along with it. They got what they wanted, and now they're talking. But why are you only thinking about their choices? I wanted to know. What about the choices the men made? So often we tend to talk about the victims and the ways they went along with or took advantage of or kept suspiciously quiet about rape. They didn't leap up and stab the man and go running out clutching their clothes to their outraged bosoms. Therefore, they consented. Saying, quote, but she consented is just one of the myriad ways we are so quick to blame the victim. Yes, we have choices. We choose between humiliation now or humiliation later. We choose between short skirts and long. We choose when to leave and when to stay. We choose when to say yes. It's just easier than saying no, at least in that moment. None of these choices equals consent. On top of it all, we choose to blame each other. Maybe out of misogyny, maybe simply out of fear, forgetting as we so do that there is someone else in the picture who also has a choice, a man, 
who can choose between decency and dominance. All of that. There are so many times I was over here and I was just, oh, snap. I do want to um, point out something very topical, though. She was talking about other countries, and there are still states in the United States where minors can get married, and that often is a way for um, parents to shield child rapists from statutory rape. Um, There are organizations like Child USA who are working to eliminate child marriage, but there are still states where child marriage is legal and parents can sign for their minor child under 16 years old to marry a 30-something man if he rapes her and she gets pregnant. So that is a very real reality still happening in the United States. And she was talking about other countries. This, This happens here. This happens here. Which puts into perspective, this is a global pandemic. This is exactly what this is. And what I loved most about this chapter was at the end and all throughout, she interwoved, interweaved choices. And a man also has a choice, right, to be decent. And then, you know, remember, um, gosh, it was a couple episodes ago when we talked with the therapists, you know, here that had worked with sexual offenders. And just understanding that as women, we are birthing and raising sexual offenders. Wow, right? As a society, we are allowing that to happen because we're not having those hard conversations that need to happen about what is consent, um, what is decency, what is kindness, what is um, compassion, right? Because if I see my husband or my past sexual partners as just a piece of meat just to get off, I'm I'm, I'm not seeing them as a... Yeah, well, and for straight women, I mean, their entire dating pool is potential predators. I mean, you're constantly walking around. Is this person dangerous, or are they going to be a good person? And I feel like, again... She said a lot of it comes down to education and understanding when the patriarchy and misogyny is so deeply ingrained that, I mean, I've heard women who have had consensual sex with men going into it, actively saying, yes, I want this, and then afterwards saying, I feel like he just used me to masturbate himself. I got nothing out of that. It was an assault because I, we were going into it together, but I got nothing out of that experience. So where is that caring and compassion and, again, as she said, an activity that one or multiple people choose to actively engage with together? It's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be this shielded secret thing that it's made out to be and when we keep it this sex is dirty you can't have sex it's bad what are we teaching people yeah great questions shelby i wish i had answers but i don't but i think that um, this author so beautifully states that we 
we have to change the way we, we think about consent, right? It's not as simple and black and white as what we really want it to be. And interestingly, uh, she brings up the BDSM culture, right? Now, I will go on this hill and I will die on this hill uh, for eternity, that even within cultures and subcultures like this, there are still very unhealthy and abusive um, people, right? Yeah. So, and I just, and I, after reading parts of her book, I understand, like, she would also agree with that. But there are many, um, uh, many groups or individuals within the BDSM community that are healthy, that are very much about consent at every single moment, right? And, uh, you know, as women, we're not taught to figure out what is pleasurable. We're not taught that it's okay to explore our own bodies. It's okay to be responsible for our own orgasms. Um, and then some men are quite intimidated by women who want to tell them how to pleasure their body, right? Because if we flip the coin, men have this pressure, this expectation of knowing how one should pleasure a woman, right? And so when we can put ourselves in the middle and do communication and explore and talk about, you know, I like it when you touch me here, but I don't like it when you touch me there. And in the moment, as well as before you even begin touching each other, right? And that, uh, I need to make a t-shirt that says, communication is sexy as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Communication is a part of healthy sex and sex, healthy sex and sexuality, and I feel like that is so important to be educating on, especially from a young age. I know we do all of this violence prevention work, and violence prevention work is important. However, when the lines of consent are blurred by misogyny and patriarchy, and women are taught not to recognize their own pleasure in their own bodies, and men are taught to completely discard what we care about i mean we don't it's not consensual and it's still it's still harm it's still sexual harm if it is not 100 percent enthusiastically consensual that is sexual harm and that is damaging to the psyches of young women and young boys when that communication is not explained and taught beforehand so again these are conversations that are uncomfortable and people don't want to have because again oh, it's sex, it's dirty. But if we're not teaching these things, the harm is just going to continue. That cycle is never going to be broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, excellent book. And, you know, like we did on the last show, I will link all of the books in the details section um, of the podcast. All right, what you got? Oh, you know, we start talking about patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah. let's change the world. Let's change the narrative. All right, well, um, I'm going to take a step back. We're going into some poetry. And I found this book titled Milk and Honey by Rupi Kaur. And I'm going to read some excerpts from this. So um, just a little bit about the book. Milk and Honey is a collection of poetry about love, loss, trauma, abuse, healing, and femininity. It is split into four chapters, and each chapter serves a different purpose, deals with different pain, he heals a different heartache, 
Milk and honey takes readers through a journey of the most bitter moments in life and finds sweetness in them because there is sweetness everywhere if you are just willing to look. It sounds sweet. And um, again, I will link this in the bio. I encourage you to read it, but there were some excerpts that stood out to me that I thought would be powerful to read um, just for this, this series. I think it makes sense. So this first, ex- this first excerpt reads, How is it so easy for you to be kind to people, he asked. Milk and honey dripped from my lips as I answered, because people have not been kind to me. The first boy that kissed me held my shoulders down like the handlebars of the first bicycle he ever rode. I was five. He had the smell of starvation on his lips, which he picked up from his father feasting on his mother at 4 a.m. He was the first boy to teach me my body was forgiving to those that wanted that I should feel anything. Okay, and this next part. If I knew what safety looked like, I would have spent less time falling into arms that were not. Sex takes the consent of two. If one person is lying there not doing anything because they are not ready or not in the mood or simply don't want to, yet the other is having sex with their body, it's not love. It is rape. The idea that we are so capable of love but still choose to be toxic. Mm-hmm. So these next couple are from the section of the book called The Healing. And I chose this one because it really resonates with me as someone on my healing journey. I know we're all on a journey, but a lot of my stuff is still fresh And this one. Perhaps I don't deserve nice things because I am paying for sins I don't remember. Right, that self-blame it hurts, but to see it written by someone else, it's like, God, I'm not alone. You're not alone in these feelings. Okay, and I like, I like this one. I feel, I find this one powerful. Apparently, it is ungraceful of me to mention my period in public because the actual biology of my body is too real. It is okay to sell what's between a woman's legs more than it's okay to mention its inner workings. The recreational use of this body is seen as beautiful, while its nature is seen as ugly. Mm-hmm. There's also illustrations. They're all line drawings, but they are also quite powerful and I want to close off the series with this poem this excerpt of this collaboration of poems I want to apologize to all the women I have called pretty before I have called them intelligent or brave 
I'm sorry I made it sound as though something as simple as what you're born with is the most you have to be proud of when your spirit has crushed mountains. From now on, I will say things like you are resilient or you are extraordinary, not because I don't think you're pretty, but because you are so much more than that. Beautiful. I like that. Somebody saying the worth of a woman is more than just pretty. To look beyond and see the resilience, the strength, the bravery, the courage mm-hmm. just to exist in this world. Exactly. And that's kind of why I chose that as the final poem for me to read on here because I just want to highlight the strength that we all have as women on this journey of all the terrible things in the world that we are likely to come across. We are resilient, we are strong, and we have each other. But again, that book is Milk and Honey by Rupi Kaur. Okay, that one's going on my list. (laughs) My list just keeps getting longer of all these books to read. I need to be rich so I don't have to work so I can just read all day. In putter. Read and putter. You know, that's what I want to do. So um, for the final installment of this uh, series, I'm returning back to the book, um, Dear Sister, which um, is a collection of letters from survivors of sexual violence. Um, those are the ones I read from last time as well, and there was just so many more. I'd love to read the whole book, but I can't. So I'm going to encourage you, our listeners, to go out and get this book, um, as all of them, because they're all just phenomenal. And this book is edited by Lisa Vectora Borchers, an introduction by, again, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm so sorry, uh, Asaya Shahida Simmons. And so the first uh, letter I'm going to read is entitled uh, Untitled Sketch, and it is written by um, Joan Chen. I woke up a couple of months ago from an anxious, insomnia sleep, wide-eyed, awake, in the dark, steely cold, hyper-alert, hair standing up on the back of my neck, Eyes exploding, open, and searching around the room in silent realization. Feeling the memory rather than seeing it. How could I have seen it? I was a child in a dark room. The feeling of a coarse, unshaved beard against my thighs and rubbing between my legs. Scratchy. The large, strong hand holding my ankles apart. The hands are so big, they almost reach to my knees. I was so little, feeling pinned. I remember, I remember. I know, I know, I know. It was my father. 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 I lay awake the rest of the night figuring it out, putting it all together. The childhood dreams of someone chasing me. A nightmare, night terrors, 
the nightmare of a man in a car chasing me, running, 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 panting, 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 hurting, hurting, hurting. The car catches up to me. I turn. The man gets out of the car. It is my father. The dream repeats, 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 repeats for years and years and years and years. It was my father. 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 Night terrors. I can't sleep in the dark. I need to have a light on. Judy is afraid of the dark. My brother and mother make fun of me. I am terrified of darkness. I scream and cry when my mother tries to make me turn off the light. I wake up terrified. I hear snoring in my room on the other side of the bed. It is loud. It is snoring like my father. My father snores just like that. Snoring terrifies me. Snoring is a night terror. It was my father. 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 I wet the bed. Why did that happen? I wet the bed every night. When did that start? I was too big. I had already had a dry bed for years. The doctor says there is nothing wrong with me that a good spanking won't fix. He holds up his large man's hand like a paddle when he tells this to my mother. I am still lying on the exam table exposed. My little girl's body. Man terrors. Night terrors. It was my father. 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 It was. My father. Where was my mother? She knew. That was oof. That was big. And for so many people, that is their reality. Yeah, me too. Letter number 13, The Aftershock, by Dorlar Harris. Dear sister friend, I have not lived your experience, but I am a part of it. I am an aftershock. I am the worst case scenario. I am the product of years of sexual abuse but I am also your strength. My soul is made up of pieces of your strength and survival. There is a piece of me that comes from the first time he touched you. There is a piece of me that comes from the first time he broke your trust and tore into your being. There is a piece of me that comes from every time he repeated this act. There is a piece of me for every time you felt the need to lie, risking your own safety to protect others around you. There is a piece of me for when you told someone the truth and a piece for when you were forced to tell everyone the truth by the fetus growing in your teenage body. There is a piece of me that comes from the insults and abuse 
from your mother emerging out of her own feelings of anger, helplessness, and shame. Part of me is made up of the misplaced feelings of guilt you felt as your rapist and stepfather fled, leaving your half-siblings abandoned and confused. A big piece of me is made of your journey through the pregnancy and labor. The emotions behind all these pieces of me fit together to make me whole. The most important piece of me comes from the fact that you are still here, living, giving life to other children who you chose to create and are loving as best you can, including me. Your actions are your own and do not reflect the unjust and violent actions that were forced upon you. Your determination to live and dedicate so much of yourself to allow me to live beyond your suffering is far-reaching. Your survival has been my life source. I thank you. Your openness to taking on life, love, happiness, and hope has most shaped my soul. Words really are not enough. Life, love, happiness, hope. They are all bigger than the names they bear. Know that I live in love with the strongest pieces of your experience, fueling my every step. Your strength is behind every goal I achieve. The pieces filled with your strength allow me to survive my own traumas and look forward to the future. Without your strength, there would not have been a future for me. Aftershocks can sometimes work to shake loose the harmful toxins that need to be released. The process of this release is extremely painful, but the purity that replaces the toxins is healing. What began as the worst-case scenario has evolved into the best result. I am living a full and happy life through your grace. Now you can take pieces of me to give you the strength to lead you beyond a past that was never rightfully yours to begin with. Much love, respect, and gratitude, your child. That was really, for all that left her, she wants her voice to return. It has been lost for one year, nine months, and 25 days. It left with his powerful arms. It left with his suffocating grip. It left with his ears that played death. It left when his violent hands demanded her skin. It was the moment in which she realized that the word no was useless. She begs her tears to dry up. They have persisted for one year, nine months, and 25 days. They have fallen for the horror that is remembering. They have fallen for the death of her soul. They have fallen for her desire to drown herself. They have fallen because she could not silence the nightmares. They are still falling because she breathes deeply and his life continues as if nothing happened. She hopes her strength will return. She has needed it for one year, nine months, and 25 days. With her strength, she will shatter the silence. With her strength, she will remember that her life is worth it. 
With her strength, she will breathe deeply. With her strength, her life will continue. It will never be as if nothing had happened. But if she gives up on herself, it will be as if he had taken all of her. Mm -hmm. And this last uh, excerpt that I'm going to read uh, from this book is called Our Ancestors Were Watching by Isabella Gitana Wolf. Our ancestors were watching while you were raping their daughters, leaving them with tears of acid rain, weeping of the pain we should never have tasted, trying to get us to suckle their nipples of nourishment, but only sour on our tongues, only blood flows, drowning us as they watch in disbelief, as they throw us a life raft of it wasn't your fault that we just let float by because we can't recognize even a thread of familiar. You left us with nothing but wounds that won't heal and voices that were silenced. Be silent or I will kill you. And when that didn't work because he understood the death within me, be silent or I will kill your mother. Ancestors, Mother Kali, Mamata, my kin, where are you, my mothers? I can't see you in the dark. Give me strength. And the next time he blocked my way with groping hands and poison on his breath, I was not silent. No, I will kill you. The warrior spirit crept in, but I could not look her in the eye. She spiraled herself in and through my ribs entangling herself within my womb and hid there. I turned my back then on my mothers, pretending they didn't exist, pretended my warrior was not hiding inside. How am I to be loved now? How am I loved without being fucked? And so on my search for love and wholeness, I filled my emptiness with fucks and licks and sucks, hoping, praying, I would be filled, yet I remained hollow, empty, unloved, until one day I realized that I could love myself. I held that love in my heart and womb. My ancestors rejoiced. I held that love in my mouth, in my breast in my pussy. My ancestors rejoiced. I took the love I felt for me and reclaimed my body, my spirit, my voice. I take back my heart and womb, my mother's dance. I heal my mouth, my breasts, my cunt, bringing the goddess back to her rightful place. My mother's dance, my mother's sing, my mother's tell me now I am free. I am free. My body now restored as a temple where a goddess resides. The curve of my breast is gilded in the finest gold. The sway of my ass is draped in silks. My belly is painted in crimson red and my toes are in purple. And the temple of my body, my body as my temple, sex 
as my magic, magic as my sex. I see myself in the reflection in my lover's eyes, knowing then as my body comes to the rhythm inside, I know another layer of freedom and my mother's dance. And they sing to the song of letting go and surrendering, not to my lover, but to myself. My body is a temple, and you worship at the altar of my feet, opening me in ways I didn't know existed. I take my lover's nipple in my mouth and drink the sweet milk of my ancestors. I turn your acid rain into a flowing river between my legs of wet water and earth that you taste on your tongue like communion of our mother's bodies and of our mother's blood. I stand now in my power and I dance to the beat of the drum inside that I never lost but found again. And I sing, I sing the song. I am not a victim. I am not of a survivor. I am a phoenix rising above my own ashes. I am a warrior. I am a warrior of the mother line, reclaiming the cunts of her daughters. And my mother's dance and my mother's sing along with me. Yes. Ooh. Fire. That Ooh. good note to end on. It got real sad and real emotional there but i feel like that reclaiming of power because we will survive you will survive you are a warrior a beautiful goddess womanhood is powerful and all survivors we know that it's not just women i need to throw that out there but still reclaiming the power we have a special guest with us today she is someone who is near and dear to my heart and that of New Beginnings because she started her social work career with us when she was in her bachelor's program here in Owensboro, Kentucky. And her name is Sonia Ray. And welcome, Sonia. Would you just tell our amazing listeners a little bit about you? Yes. Thank you so much, Sonia. I'm originally from Mexico, so bilingual. I'm working on my master's degree. I'm about to finish. I have three more weeks, longest three weeks. I work as a school-based therapist. I work with preschoolers. I work with middle schoolers. I'm doing my uh, internship with substance abuse, uh, mainly female clients. So that's what life is about right now. That's a whole lot. In school. <laughs> In school. And um, a grandmother and a mom and a wife and a sister. And how many other hats? A lot. <laughs> a lot. Well, I am so grateful that you said yes, because in this amazing book um, that I've already shared some poetry from, there was a beautiful poem that was written in Spanish. And um, I speak some, but I am not fluent, and I don't think it would do justice to the poem. So um, thank you for saying yes to coming and to reading this beautiful poem. Uh this poem is by Sara Durnan, and it's titled... El título de este poema se llama Para Todo Lo Que Se Marchó. Ella quiere que su voz regrese. La ha perdido hace un año, nueve meses y veinticinco días. 
se le iba con los abrazos poderosos, se le iba con los apretones sofocantes, se le iba con los oídos que jugaban a ser sordos, se le iba cuando, los, cuando las violentas manos reclava, reclamaban su piel. Era el momento que se dio cuenta de que la palabra no era inútil. Ella pide que sus lágrimas se sequen. Han persistido desde hace un año, nueve meses y veinticinco días. Han caído por el horror que es recordarlo. Han caído por la muerte de su alma. Han caído por su deseo de ahogarse. Han caído porque no ha podido acallar sus pesadillas. Todavía están cayendo porque él respira profundamente y la vida de él continúa como si nada hubiera pasado. Ella espera que su fuerza vuelva. La necesita desde hace un año, nueve meses y veinticinco días. Con su fuerza romperá el silencio. Con su fuerza recordará su vida que vale la pena. Con su fuerza respirará profundamente. Con su fuerza su vida continuará. Jamás será como si nada hubiera pasado. Pero si se abandona, pero si se abandona a sí misma, será como si él hubiera tomado todo de ella. I will readily say I have no idea what you said. I could pick out a few words, but it sounded just beautiful when you read that. Um, and for our listeners who do not speak Spanish, would you um, be kind enough to translate that and read in English? The title of this poem is For Everything That Has Gone, or For Everything That Is Gone. She wants her voice back. She lost her voice a year, nine months, and 25 days ago. She lost her voice to the strong arms. She lost her voice to the strong hugs. They were suffocating. She lost her voice to the deaf ears. She lost her voice to the violent hands that demanded her skin. In that moment when she realized that the word no was useless. She wants her tears to dry. They keep running since a year, nine months, and 25 days. They keep running for the fear of remembering him. They keep running for the death of her soul. They keep running for her wish to drown herself. They keep running because she keeps, uh, the nightmares keep coming back. They're still running because she, he reads and lived his life as if nothing had ever happened. She awaits for her strength to return. She needs her strength since a year, nine months, and 25 days ago. That strength to break the silence, the strength to remember that her life is worth it, the strength to breathe freely, the strength to continue her life as if nothing ever happened, knowing that her life will never be the same, knowing that her life it's never, knowing that her life will be as if he had taken everything from her. So... That was really powerful. She is regaining and finding the voice that she lost one year, nine months ago. In 25 days. Like, that's a very precise amount of time, you know? Like, that's not like, oh, approximately six months. Wow. 
I really liked how she talked about in her story the ways she lost her voice in the suffocating hugs, you know, and the ability to not say no and other things. Hmm, that was really good. Well, you know the work we do, as you know, so powerful, so meaningful, um, and especially for here in our local community, you know, for individuals who English is not their first language, right? representation and being able to see something that represents who you are when you walk through the door of a um, a building, an organization, you know, or something. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming in and for um, sharing the gift of your language with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, my gosh, what an episode, Shelby. Yes, all of the... I know, right? (laughs) We're like, we're like, what what words do we say? How can we... La, 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 la. (laughs) Thank you for saving that there, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I always say it's my favorite one whenever we're done with an episode, but I don't know. This one was, this one and the last one, I think were pretty gosh darn special. I think so, too. I think that uplifting the voices of survivors was an amazing idea to do for Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month. I think it's important for hearing these voices, uplifting these stories from a variety variety of diverse backgrounds. I mean, I, I think the key that I at least want everyone out there to know is you are not alone. If you are struggling, if you have had any type of experience or can resonate with any of these stories, there is help available. There is support available. And too many of us, men, women, everybody in between, have experienced sexual violence. Like Jennifer said before, it is an epidemic. And having these voices be amplified and heard and destigmatizing sexual harm is the only way to make progress and hopefully put an end to it. Yeah. Mm. This has been a very um, special month, month of April. Well... We've come to the end. And like I always say, in some form or fashion, you can change the world tomorrow just by listening today. Have a great one. Thank you so much. Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Rodney Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.